0: Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're obsessed with her? And you're obsessed with her daughter! right, easy, Geraldo.
1: And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking the something of the something. We're talking calling men chum. And we're talking it, as in homosexual. And I'm
2: Joe. And I'm Trace, and if I were you, Joe, I'd stay away from the pate. The, the calories. Oh my God, <laughs> that line's so rude. Uh, everyone, we are discussing Alfred Hitchcock's Rope today, and mm-hmm. Rope a Dope, as Joe calls it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um uh, a.k.a. Alfred Hitchcock's gayest movie ever, and that's really saying uh, something.
1: I mean, it's the one that really puts it front and center, but doing some research, it's pretty evident that Hitchcock was interested in the queer experience when you look at the number of queer actors and queer characters he includes in his films. But yeah, this one...
2: Very queer indeed. I wonder if it's you know it's like you know you you're, you want what you can't have you're you're fascinated by what you aren't so maybe it's because Hitchcock was not queer uh, he was just fascinated with queer life so there's a lot of bitchery in this movie.
1: I would say yeah. I mean, if you remove the murder from this movie, it's basically a bit of a screwball comedy about like a couple of gays who just want to <gasps> hook up their fag head,
2: sorry fruit fly <laughs> with. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, right. Because that entire subplot with Janet and uh is it Kenneth? 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 Uh, you're just like what?
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Why do you care so much, Brandon? Oh, it's because you're a queen who likes to stir up shit.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is a first time watch for both of us, right, Joe? No, I've seen this before. Oh, have you really? Yeah. Oh shit! I didn't oh, fuck. I didn't know that. Well, this is a first time <laughs> watch for me. <laughs>
1: I mean, it's not like I've seen it a million times or anything, but I think I walked. I went through a Hitchcock phase when I was in university, Mm. and I just tried to watch a bunch of the quote-unquote classics, and this was one of the ones where people said, oh, it's formally, like stylistically, it's such a departure from any other film that he made, but also any other film that was being made at the time. So I was like, cool, I want to see what this, you know, no edits, long takes film looks like
2: oh I was really into I mean I knew that going in you know oh it, it's it's meant to look almost like one simultaneous shot for the most part there's like there's like mm-hmm. three or four actual like un, un, un unhidden cuts in this yes. movie but it's still I mean watching even like uh on the Wikipedia page for this movie you can see a chart that actually lists every single cut all the shots how long they are and I was like oh I'm gonna like follow along with this and mm-hmm. I kept missing them because they yeah. were so well hidden <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a couple of them are a little
1: more obvious. Some of them are, you know, very—they're traditional in the way that he's editing the film. But yeah, yeah, I think at the end of the day, there's something like twelve in the whole film. It's eighty minutes.
2: Uh, yes, correct. It's ten, or sorry, there's ten shots in the movie. Nine cuts, I guess, if you want there to say. There we see go. Okay. Um. Yeah, well, I mean, we have a lot to discuss, because not only does this pull from a real-life murder, it's also based mm-hmm. on a play, and, of course, we have this incredible camera gimmick that we have to talk through. Indeed, yeah, it's multifaceted, this rope dope So, okay, why don't we start at the beginning? In the beginning. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> First, there was man, and then there was rope. So, this... Film and play are based on the real life case slash situation of Mm -hmm. Leopold and Loeb. That is Nathaniel Freudenthal Leopold Jr. and Richard Albert Loeb, who they're usually, again, referred to collectively as Leopold and Loeb. Uh, They were two wealthy students and possibly lovers. I, I kept finding things that were like, oh, yeah, they were, but like it wasn't really well. It wasn't known for sure. It was just assumed they were. Do you have any more information on that?
1: Yeah, it's very weird, because they have always been referred to as queer. But then when you start looking through it, you're like, okay, but where is the proof? Where is it coming out? Even if you comb through the entire Wikipedia page, you still don't really see it. I think it comes out in leopold's letters and or his
2: autobiography oh so maybe people were inferring from from things in his letter that probably didn't say i really enjoyed fucking you Uh, Mm -hmm. but it was probably just like oh this seems like they were lovers they were they were, were getting a reading out of their letters
1: yeah and yet people feel strongly enough that they can be like oh this one was the top and this one was the bottom
2: I'm like, uh, excuse you. <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? So uh, we we can talk about that a lot too, because even in this film, yeah, I saw a reference to uh, to Brandon as the top and Philip as the bottom, because mm-hmm. Brandon is, you know, the the masculine yep. and the, the the dominant one, and Philip is less so. And mm-hmm. it's like that's not really the stigma we want to put out there, everybody. <laughs> well, ideally, we don't want any stigma, but
1: uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's not stereotype people based their their sexual position preference is probably not determined strictly by their effeminacy
2: or their, I don't know, like bossiness. Yes. Yeah, 100%. And if you subscribe to that stigma, um, stop listening. <laughs> just, you know, do some work on yourself. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so these are two wealthy students that were at the University of Chicago, who, in May of 1924, kidnapped and murdered a 14-year-old boy named Bobby mm-hmm. Frank- Franks. I'm sorry, Bobby Franks. Which, I'm assuming for many reasons, specifically the, 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 the production code, the Hayes code, they could not kill a child in this movie.
1: No, and, and that's often not the thing that people kind of gravitate to. They're mostly interested in the killers. Like a lot of true crime, they don't really seem to give two shits about the
2: actual victim. Right, I mean, right? Well, what do we know about Mr. David Kentley in this movie outside of the fact that he is soon to be engaged to Miss Janet?
1: Mhm actually if you watch the trailer they're they're already engaged he had proposed to her that day in the park and then he leaves to come
2: for this meeting and they kill him so no i thought i, I thought that they said that but then she said something that was like oh we 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 might as well be engaged so i was like mm-hmm. well that's a weird way to put that but it's because she doesn't formally accept Oh okay well that needed to be in the movie <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so they committed the murder, um, characterized at the time as the crime of the century, as a demonstration of their ostensible intellectual superiority, which they believed enabled and entitled them to carry out a quote-unquote perfect crime without consequences. And that's definitely a thing where I'm like, okay, cool, like, do that. Um, don't, don't throw (laughs) a dinner party (laughs) on top of the body. (laughs) Well, admittedly, in real life, they did not. Yes, throw exactly. a party. <laughs> they just got caught. Um, yes. No, so, so Leopold is Brandon. Uh, he believed himself akin to the Nietzschean Superman and Loeb as the... Oh, I'm sorry. Nope. They they swap back and forth. This is the biggest problem. Yeah. Okay. Right, so Leopold believed himself akin to the Nietzschean Superman and Loeb as the dominant figure or quote unquote top, as you said, mm. in their relationship. It was believed... That Loeb used sex as a way of repaying Leopold for going along with the whole thing. Okay, so so Loeb is our Brandon stand-in, and Leopold is Philip. Right. Anyway, so using sex to coerce him into following through. Uh, Leopold would later write that his mo- that his motive was, uh, to the extent that I had one, was to please Dick, which. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, after they were arrested
1: because they were caught. <laughs> oh yeah, immediately. That's my favorite part. But also, just as a sidebar, did you read what they did to this boy? No, I did not. So they poured acid on his face and also his penis <gasps> to okay. try to disguise his
2: identity. So, okay, but we're so, so we're sexualizing the crime now, like mm. by by rem- Oh my god. <laughs> I know. Problematic <laughs> already. Like <laughs> we have two seemingly queer men who are I guess disfiguring is the best way of putting it, uh, yes. a, a man's face and genitals, which, mm-hmm. oof, mm. yeah. well, they deserve everything they got. Loeb's defense attorney, uh, it was kind of a famous thing, though. He basically uh, criticized capital punishment as retributive rather than transformative justice. So instead of getting a death penalty, both men were sentenced to life imprisonment plus 99 years just yeah. in case. <laughs> <laughs> I always love those. Loeb uh, was murdered by a fellow prisoner in 1936, whereas Leopold was released on parole in 1958.
1: Yeah, there's some weird circumstances with Loeb's death as well, where he was maybe killed by another queer inmate and or the person claimed that he was the victim of unwanted sexual advances and therefore had to defend himself. So that's the argument the prison went with. So they basically queer shamed A dead man.
2: Which, I mean, in 36, I mean, that's... Yeah. Again, not right, but it's I, I get it. Like, <laughs> I is I, the time period right? Like, just kill the gays.
1: Well, and and this is again very firmly the situation and the time period that we find ourselves in. So, folks, just to put this into some historical context, if you need to remember where we're at in U.S. history, I'm going to recommend that you go back and listen to the historical chat that we had on our Creature from the Black Lagoon episode, because mm. basically the fears of masculinity under attack by covert homosexuals who are lurking everywhere and they're super dangerous that's still the same time period that we're in uh as we talk about this real life case but also leading up to rope the next decade
2: yes because there's i mean yeah rope comes out in 48 so it's about you know what 24 years after the actual murders but obviously these this crime has been the inspiration for a lot of films namely rope but it's also um uh the movie Compulsion from 1959, Mm -hmm. and the 2002 film Murder by Numbers with uh, Michael Pitt and Ryan Gosling. But... I would also argue, and I think maybe you've keyed me into this, or clued me into this, Joe, but Scream. Yeah, I think I said it way back in our very
1: first episode, because I see Stu as the boy who is coerced into going along Mm -hmm. with it by his more dominant
2: boyfriend. And I think probably when you said that to me, you know, what, two and a half years ago, I was like, oh, yeah, sure, uh uh-huh, because Uh I didn't know what you were talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I know, because when we were talking about this episode last week, you were like, I don't know what Leopold and Lopez. (laughs) I mean, you've said it multiple times, and I was like, it's probably, like, two men. I got it right. (laughs) You're like, is that an indie rock band? (laughs) Is that a band? (laughs) Actually, that probably was my question. Okay, so moving into Rope. So this movie is based on a stage play. Um, mm-hmm. The play is set on the first floor of a house in Mayfair, London, in 1929. Um, it's loosely based on the Leopold and Loeb murder case. Um, so we have you know two university students, uh, Wyndham Brandon and Charles Grano, um, who have murdered their fellow student, Ronald Kentley. So again, all these names are changed in the film. Yeah, As an expression of their supposed intellectual superiority. At the beginning of the play, they hide the body in a chest, blah, blah, blah. The same thing happens. The difference is, though, that the play is a bit more explicitly queer than the film <laughs> Just is. Just a touch, yeah. Yes. So um, in, in the film, you know, Hitchcock and the ad- adapter Hume Cronin and the screenwriter author Lawrence. because if y'all go back to our episode in Rebecca, you'll know that someone is paid to adapt the thing and then someone is paid to write the screenplay. I, I guess maybe the adapter is like, okay, we're going to do this, this and this. Here's a basic outline of what we're doing with the mm-hmm. original property. I think so. Yeah. And then the next person,
1: aka the screenwriter comes in to finesse the dialogue and the characterization. That's that how would I've make sense. It.
2: So, obviously, the film moves it all to 1940s New York City. Pretty much every character is renamed except for uh, James Stewart's Rupert Cadell. And then they added in a bunch of, uh, like, characters and stuff. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Characters and stuff. There's my academic uh, (laughs) explanation (laughs) of this. This film, it's populated with... Characters and stuff mm-hmm. So, Rope is one of Hitchcock's most Experimental and uh, one of the most Interesting experiments ever attempted by a Major director working with big box office names So again, if you've seen the film, you know this But if you haven't seen it, um, Hitchcock Abandons many standard film techniques to allow For the long, unbroken scene So, uh, mm-hmm. what, what, what are modern films That have done this? You know, you have the movie uh, like Silent House with Elizabeth Olsen, Birdman <laughs> Oh, okay, yeah
1: I was like, really? We're going with that No-budget, <laughs> schlocky horror 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 film that no one has seen with elizabeth olsen
2: okay so i have seen silent house because it was the winner of that dreaded f cinema score and it's not a bad movie it's also a remake i think of a spanish film i think so
1: yeah i will admit i was going with a more highfalutin option i was going to say russian arc i don't know
2: what that means okay it's a it's a film
1: a russian (laughs) film that's set entirely in a museum but it is one single take isn't 1917 the same way
2: uh yes actually you are correct I mean, it's more common today, but back yeah. in 1948, it was not common. And No, it would be like, what the fuck are you doing? Because we can only shoot in 10 minute reels. Yes. Okay, perfect. So yes, they could each shot ran continuously for up to 10 minutes, which is the camera's film capacity uh, without interruption. It was shot on a single set, obviously in this apartment, mm-hmm. aside from the opening establishing shot uh, street scene under the credits. But outside of that, there's very little editing in the film. The walls of the set were on rollers and could silently be moved out of the way to make way for the camera and then replaced when they were to come back into shot prop men were constantly moving furniture and other props out of the way of the large technicolor camera. And then oh, this is also I think Hitchcock's first technicolor film as well. He'd done all black and white before this.
1: It was and folks, if you have never seen what the early technicolor cameras look like, they are the size of about a fridge or a washing machine. So imagine (laughs) that coming at you as prop people are pulling things away from you and you're trying not to trip on cables.
2: So I, I mean, obviously, I've heard the term technicolor so many times. It's like, you know, how they colored films back then mm-hmm. but i was like but how did they do it so i went to like the, the, the wikipedia page for technicolor and i was like oh this is too much i don't know <laughs> it's <laughs> very technical it's very technical i was like okay i might just like watch a documentary on it to be honest oh listeners if you have a good recommendation or maybe a brief youtube video please send it our way Ooh, I mean, I can Google that. But yes, you know, by, by, if there's an actual documentary on it, by all means, like, send it to me. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, so a team of sound men and camera operators kept the camera and microphones in constant motion uh, mm-hmm. as the actors kept to a carefully choreographed set of cues. Which, I mean, it makes sense, right? This is based on a play. It feels like it's, like, you're shooting a play. Yes. It shouldn't, I was going to say it shouldn't be that difficult because, you know, we have, like, filmed things of of, uh, of plays and musicals all the time. But those are also fixed cameras, whereas that is not what Hitchcock was interested in doing here.
1: hmm Yeah, and you can really see it when you watch this movie. I'm hyper aware of how frequently the camera is on the prowl.
2: Yes, yes, absolutely. So this filming technique, which of course conveys the impression of continuous action, you know, this film is mostly in real time. It's an 80-minute movie, and it takes place over a 100-minute period. So there's like mm-hmm. 20 minutes of stuff that's sped up here. Yep. But it serves to lengthen the duration of the action in the mind of the viewer. Not much really behind-the-scenes drama here, although James Stewart did not enjoy this (laughs) film. No, I think
1: he rightfully realized that he was miscast in this role. And I, I have impressions on that, informed by the screenwriter, who we should note is a very loud and proud homosexual man and if you want a delightful very candid, very spill the tea documentary I highly encourage you to watch the one that accompanies the DVD or the Blu-ray
2: of this Oh, good to know. Well, and also it's not just him who was gay on the set of this film. Well, no (laughs) John Dahl, who plays Brandon, is believed to have been gay. Mm Co-star Farley Granger who plays Philip was, was gay Obviously the screenwriter Arthur Lawrence was gay. They were fucking yeah, well, and because they wanted Montgomery Cliff to play uh, Brandon. Mm-hmm. And they wanted Cary Grant
1: to play Rupert.
2: Which, uh, 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 Cary Grant, I could have seen. I, I, honestly, I don't think I've ever seen a movie with James Stewart, ever. And as soon as I heard his voice in this movie, I was like, oh, that guy. Mari
1: <laughs> Sorry, most people know him from It's a Wonderful Life.
2: Yeah, which I've never seen, uh, okay. or the Philadelphia store. I, I looked at it. I was like, surely I've seen something with this man because I've never seen Rear Window. I've never seen North by Northwest. I've never I seen Harvey. Okay, I, I didn't go through a Hitchcock phase whenever uh, I was in university. Oh, there you go. Hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, no. Stewart did not like this. He thought. Uh, he thought that the important thing here was the camera, not the actors, which really irked him. And right. I don't. Even disagree with him, and critics agree with him too, which I'll get to in a minute. But um, this is a movie where it, it is it is a gimmick, mm-hmm. and it's more about that. And I kind of felt that for a lot of the movie, where I was paying more attention to the camera than I was what was actually happening on screen, if that makes any sense. It does. And it's a little disappointing,
1: if only because... and. I mean, I'm not going to say turn around and watch this movie again, but the dialogue I find in this movie actually sparkles. There's a lot of wit and a lot of cleverness in here. And again, Lawrence is kind of a gem for acknowledging all the ways that Hitchcock sort of fuck this up by (laughs) not just undercutting him in certain ways, like the original murder, like the murder that opens this movie was not in the script. Hitchcock added that, which then removes a ton of tension because you Originally, you were not meant to know whether or not there was a body in the chest.
2: Oh, but okay. Well, so when we get to some queer reading shit, I actually think that the murder is very necessary to help support a queer reading.
1: (laughs) A 100%. Yes. (laughs) Uh, But the other big thing is that in the adaptation process, one of the big changes that shifts and I apologize if I'm stepping on your toes. No, go ahead. One of the big things that shifts from the play to the film is that Rupert, the Jimmy Stewart character is Mm -hmm. actually meant to be queer.
2: Well, because he's supposed to be an ex-lover of, I want to say Brandon, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Which again, so if, if well, I don't know why I'm talking to people who uh, would would combat us on a reading of this film, but if you're a bloody disgusting commenter who always shits on us, <laughs> there, there's really no defense for you here. Like this movie's oh my gay as fuck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: this is not a creature from the black lagoon. This is very firmly a Bride of Frankenstein
2: situation. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and then j- just quickly finishing up the production here, you know, uh, the, the, the the cyclorama in the background, which is, of course, like the backdrop of the uh, uh, the New York cityscape, it was the largest backing ever used on a soundstage. Uh, it included yeah. models of the Empire State and Chrysler buildings, numerous chimneys smoke, lights coming on in buildings, neon lights light up, and the sunset slowly unfolds as the movie progresses. Um, within the course of the film, the clouds made up of spun glass change position and shape eight times
1: i'll confess that's one of the things i always forget to pay attention to because i know it's happening but i find that i'm not it's it's so subtly done that i mm-hmm. almost don't even take notice of it even though you can very clearly see that it is getting darker as the film progresses
2: yes 100 and and i don't want to say that i didn't like this movie i actually did like this movie a lot i just didn't love it but i i will subscribe I will agree with you that I would love to actually watch this again to pay attention more to the dialogue than just Mm -hmm. the camera work. Because on a first time viewing, it's very much like, oh, shit, like this is 1948. Look at this shit.
1: Oh, yeah. It's a technical marvel, but it also means that you're often not really paying attention to the narrative. Well, and that's the thing.
2: Is it on me or is it on the film? Who could say?
1: Uh, It's tricky, right? Because we're talking about a film from 1948. This is not a novelty to us anymore. And yet I find when I watch the film, it does feel like a novelty. It feels fresh and new in that way. So I do kind of think the film is saying, hey, aren't I amazing technically? So it is hard to overlook that.
2: Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, So yeah, Rope was released theatrically on August 26th, 1948 in New York City, and then nationwide a month later on September 25th, 1948. It did perform poorly at the box office, Uh, and of course our good queer screenwriter, Arthur Lawrence, attributed this failure to audiences' uneasiness with the homosexual undertones in the relationship between Philip and Brandon. Unless you think, again, that this is just like, oh, it's just, uh, it's just subtext. Yeah, it's just hearsay. The movie was banned in several American cities because of the implied homosexuality between Philip and Brandon.
1: Mm -hmm. Again, folks, let's not forget, we're very worried about masculinity being under fire from the so-called homosexual agenda. So it makes sense that people would look at this movie. It's not really subtext. It's pretty textual and look at it be like, "Oh, yeah, no. We're not supporting this queer film." Sorry.
2: Mhm. So there is a person who has like a, a honestly the, the most quote-unquote well-known or famous reading, a queer reading of this film and it's someone named DA Miller in a 1990 essay called Anal Rope. And it's a long one <laughs> and there's some things in it that I think both you and I don't agree on Joe but one thing that he did try to do in this uh in this essay he was tr- trying to set right film criticism's refusal to acknowledge the homosexuality in Rip's protagonist so mm. one of the arguments Miller put forth is that the celebrated technique that had been film critics' exclusive and obsessive focus on the implied homosexuality was informed by an inseparable from the threat posed by gay ma- male sexuality so it's like I, I don't know, like, like, uh, critics didn't want to acknowledge it because they were afraid of it. And so yeah, and
1: that's actually why I made the joke off the top. So one of my three things was it. And yeah, it's because nobody wanted to talk about it, as in homosexuality, apparently, even on set, they didn't talk about it. So no one acknowledged the fact that they were making this. A homosexual queer horror film.
2: Which is interesting though, because I'm just like, okay, but John Dahl and Farley Granger are on their your Leads, both gay men. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean I mean I'm not gonna insinuate that they were fucking behind the scenes, but um, you know, they're both very attractive men and you know I just told you, Farley Granger was fucking the screenwriter. Oh, the screenwriter. well, I mean no, I I'm not he can't do both?
1: No, not in those <laughs> times. <laughs>
2: anyway so according to Warner Brothers um, records the film earned about $2 million domestically and $720,000 overseas currently and again like we talked about this with old movies all the time like Mm -hmm. it just Rotten Tomatoes scores don't really matter but (laughs) they're not very helpful (laughs) no they're not because they're all modern it's like oh it's 1948 five stars um Rope (laughs) holds a score of 94% on Rotten Tomatoes by some 47 reviews with an average score of 7.78 out of 10 and we've got a Letterboxd score of 8 out of 10 but in terms of response at the Time, you know, people were like, oh, it's exceptionally fine, like, ingenious technique, um, more of a technical tour de force than a moving film. But for, like, flat-out negative reviews, I mean, we have people that are like, um, it's interesting for people who understand filmmaking, but for anyone else, it's pretty dull. The story can't sustain the scant 80-minute runtime. Someone, oh, pearls clutching the opening scene is too graphic and the film as a whole is too gruesome so be warned before you walk into the theater <laughs> that definitely reads like a period review Yes, suspense is lost because of the constant movement of the camera. Um, having regular edits would have been better. <laughs> I'm sorry, how is suspense lost from a moving camera? That doesn't even make sense. To me, it keeps me on edge most of the time. Because I'm like, cool, where are we going? What's happening behind me? Mm-hmm, yeah. Uh. And then the the other critique was people really didn't like the dialogue in this film. Um, people <sighs> thought the bad dialogue was f- hampered even further by the camera restrictions. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs>
1: Okay, this is where I'm like, uh, did we watch a different film?
2: I don't, uh, well, we're also, uh, you know, 90 years removed. That is
1: true. Yeah, I, I find it funny, because when I talk to people in contemporary times about this, the number one thing that people say is that it's actually too stagey, that they can feel the restrictions of shooting on a single set. And while it is a technical marvel, it feels like we're just watching a play.
2: I mean, that's what we say about so many films that are adapted from plays. I mean, I, I'm not promoting Roman Polanski here, but go look at Roman Polanski's Carnage, which is Kate Winslet, John C. Riley, Jodie Foster, and Christoph Waltz, set entirely in an apartment based on a Tony Award winning play, but it also feels like you're watching a play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I just, I don't always view that as a negative personally. I, I don't.
1: Yeah, I think, hmm. You know what? I don't even know how to quantify it because sometimes it does work for me, and other yeah. times I'm like, I feel claustrophobic.
2: I mean, I I think it's maybe it's case by case, right? Like, is the action on screen captivating enough to where it doesn't matter if you feel claustrophobic Mm -hmm. in here, you know? Yeah. Or if claustrophobia is the intention. Yeah. I think the reason that it works for me here is
1: because the camera movement keeps me entertained. It's when it's too static and it's the focus is just on dialogue, that's when I start to kind of drift off a little bit. So I actually really appreciate Hitchcock keeping the camera going.
2: Yes, absolutely. So yeah, I, mean, I don't really have anything else on production or release. That's kind of it. Obviously, we have a bunch of gay shit to go through, but mm-hmm. I guess we'll kind of go through that with the plot.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to introduce a couple of readings that I'll refer to on and off throughout this. So one of them is Scott Badman and Connie Russell Josier. And they wrote a piece for Menza called Gay Coding in Hitchcock Films. So if you're interested in exploring Hitchcock's oeuvre, film by film, in terms of queer content, this is a pretty good piece, but they do have a a fairly lengthy section on rope. Mm -hmm. And then I'm also going to bring in David Grevin's piece called Making a Meal of Manhood, Revisiting Rope and the Question of Hitchcock's Homophobia. And I'm actually not going to talk too much about the homophobia angle because, well... This film doesn't necessarily make queers come off very well. You know, they're associated with murder and narcissism and egotism and thinking that they're better than everybody else. Mm-hmm. I don't find Hitchcock's films to be particularly homophobic. I think they have readings that can interpret them as coming down on queers. But by all accounts, Hitchcock himself was not anti-queer. Like, there was a reason he kept casting principally gay men in a lot of his films. Yes, he does make them villains, but he is also dealing with the Hays Code. I I find it very murky.
2: Yeah, I mean, and there's, you know, obviously we've already said a bunch of changes between the play and the film, but also, I forgot to mention, the the play ends inconclusively, where... The the James Stewart character, he's like in a moral quandary. He doesn't know what to do because he's like, "Well, you're right."
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Whereas this the film obviously had to be like, "No, the murderers have to go to jail." It has to yeah. be implied that they go to jail. Yes, yeah. This is
1: <laughs> this is what you need to do in order to satisfy Joseph Breen.
2: Which again, go back to our discussion on Rebecca because they changed a very significant aspect of that novel to adapt it to the screen.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, same restrictions. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. Shall we talk about the sex scene that opens this film, Trace? Yes,
2: yes, yes.
1: (laughs) Folks, we're getting to the queer shit right off the top because this murder is a threesome.
2: I yeah so I I have a quote and this is uh this is uh from an article called How Hitchcock's Classic Mystery Rope Cleverly Depicted Queer Life and this is for al.com written by Armand White and this is not really a critic that I like I no. I, was associated... <laughs> I was like oh fuck him No I know I associate him he's he's like the one guy that gave a bad review to get out
1: Yeah he torpedoes every every good movie with bad reviews he's kind of a dick
2: He's terrible he's he's up there with Rex Reed for me but Oh god more <laughs> queer bad queers bad gays uh, but yeah no. No, he he writes, the film opens audaciously with Philip and Brandon strangling their victim, who's screaming in close-up, it is a petite mort, and of course, if anyone's seen Bride of Chucky, we know that is uh, orgasm in French. Uh, (laughs) Or you just
1: know French.
2: (laughs) I don't know French. (laughs) Yes, we've established that repeatedly. (laughs) But yes, in the middle of a murderous afternoon threesome, and even when we cut to this guy's face, like, it's like a look of ecstasy on on his face, Mm -hmm. which, I mean, if we're talking Hellraiser, you know, pain and pleasure interchangeable. Oh, sure, sure.
1: I'm actually going to piggyback on that with Batman and Russell Hosier. So they say the murder sex occurs behind curtain windows. The death scream corresponds to the orgasm, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And then the murderers, Brandon and Philip, quickly put the body in a cabinet and go into a postcoital exhaustion. Philip doesn't even want the light turned on. In an inspired touch, Hitchcock has Brandon light a cigarette, a standard
2: Hollywood indicator for we just had sex we just had sex um there's a line later though where cuz we, we, where Brandon asks Philip like oh how, how what did you feel how do you feel and Brandon says i didn't really feel anything um until it went limp and i was like mm-hmm. oh what went limp and he meant the body or yes. the penis
1: <laughs> there're so many double entendres and so honestly many! i I have to praise Lawrence, because again, that's coming from the screenwriter, like he is embedding all of this. And apparently when they were doing the, the translation from the UK to the American, they had to take out or move a bunch of language because what would have been regular conversation pieces like the way that the men refer to each other in the UK, it would have been fine. But when you translate it over, it all sounded super gay. Uh,
2: yeah because it was like hey my boy and it's like oh you wouldn't call your friend my boy Yeah, well and th- that's where like there's like a I-, I was gonna say generational divide but it's like a century's worth of time <laughs> no no <not> a century, <laughs> i'm sorry it's like 70 but nope 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 60s 80 years 80 years difference is where we are <laughs> there we go But yeah, it's like, oh, maybe that's just how they talked back then. I don't know. But yeah, no, it's there.
1: Some of this is definitely there. So as I mentioned before, I do enjoy film noirs as well as screwball comedies. So those are both from around this period. And they kind of have a rat-tat-tat way of talking. And the dialogue does sound very similar. So this is, to a certain extent, conventional Hollywood fair. But some of the word play I find is particularly queer.
2: Well, even the performances here, though, like it does sometimes feel like the people here are playing to the back row, which is mm. you know, common in plays with these performances. So I actually really like Farley Granger's Philip a lot. I wish he had more to do in this film mm-hmm. because the, the main player very much is John Dahl's Brandon. And the oh, whole yeah. time I was watching him, I was like, because he I don't know if he's a, cl- a, a trained stage actor or not, but he is so articulate And very big, right? Like, the personality
1: is large. He's jumping off the screen.
2: Well, and I was trying to, I was like, he reminds me of somebody. And literally, it's It is a combination of Jason Sudeikis mixed with Hugo Weaving, but specifically Hugo Weaving's Agent Smith from the Matrix movies. Okay, that is very specific. I was like, what does he remind me of? Because he has like the shape and the lips of of Jason Sudeikis, but like he talks like Agent Smith.
1: (laughs) Interesting. Yeah, those lips are huge. Very much I mean, he has a very big mouth too. So I find because he has so much dialogue, I'm just constantly staring at the big mouth
2: yeah no i i'm right there with you
1: <laughs> i'm not saying it's a bad thing by the way it's just like i become almost transfixed
2: yes it, it is eye-catching to say the least <laughs> oh my god we sound like the biggest pervs right I now know, i know <laughs> <laughs> oh but wait i'm sorry also how about the happy score that plays over the opening credits <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> like mm-hmm. it, it sounded like tip like, your classical hollywood cinema like hoo, 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 oh yeah and then boom, just cut to murder <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's just an average Saturday afternoon (laughs) in New York City. Oh, boy. So these men have murdered. It's revealed later that David, the person that they murdered, he is an old school friend of his. And they actually debated which of their old school friends they were going to kill. So Kenneth was on the chopping block. But I think ultimately they just felt like David was so boring. He didn't
2: deserve to live. Yeah, I mean we we have this whole mon cause I mean you know we have about ten, fifteen minutes before guests start arriving at this party. And we have this whole thing where Brandon is like he A wants to preserve the crystal that David drank out of because mm-hmm. it's a
1: souvenir. And then Oh because of the choice dialogue, he would hate to break up the set. Yeah. <laughs> so gay.
2: But then he's also, like, posthumously shitting on this guy's choice of drink Mm -hmm. because he drank whiskey last when it would have been more appropriate for ginger ale or beer. (laughs) Okay.
1: Yes. Uh, (laughs) It is so funny how manners driven brandon is so he's very much like oh well everyone is beneath us so every choice that they make from their sense of fashion from their sense of drink from the books that they're reading they are all susceptible to uh mockery because brandon thinks that he is just that much better
2: actually oh i have a good read actually (laughs) it's also from armand white (laughs) okay but no, but he says Rope's story of one-upmanship and intellectual warfare among a particular class of gay man, because again, this is not every gay man, is ultimately universal. It shows extraordinary insight, subtly re- observing mid-20th century gay behavior. The film's greatest suspense is in its recognition of secret, furtive lust. Certainly Hitchcock and Lawrence knew such hookups as part of modern urban life. Sure. Sure. Just because it's the 40s doesn't mean people aren't fucking. But yeah, and also, like, you know, we have Brandon really infantilizing Philip a lot. The, the first moment of I, I really caught was when he pulls off his gloves for him.
1: Yeah, there's something sexual in that moment. And, of course, everything also becomes a clue where you're waiting to see what's going to trip them up. But there's a tenderness as well as an infantilization there. Yeah. Okay. So as they're talking, they discuss their plans. So they're going to put this body in the trunk. They're going to keep it throughout the dinner party, but then they're going to go and dump it at Brandon's mom's cottage house in Connecticut. In Connecticut. (laughs) This mythic house that we keep hearing about. Mm -hmm. Yes, where uh, Philip will also be going so that he can recuperate because he is a trained pianist. He's going to be doing a big show. So that's their kind of alibi yeah. slash get out of town free card. Mm-hmm. But of course the lock on the trunk is broken and they don't hide the rope very well. So there's all these things that we're keeping an eye on as voyeuristic spectators waiting to see what's going to trip them up. They also make a drink at this point to kind of toast and celebrate. So they open a bottle of champagne. A seemingly endless
2: bottle of champagne. <laughs> oh god, yeah. that They get so the, the, much the, mileage out of that. The, uh, if you took a shot Every time someone like gasped at the fact that they were drinking champagne in this movie, you would die.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, don't forget that this is only three years after the war. So Mm. some of these are luxury items that people might still be getting accustomed to again.
2: That makes sense. And also, if it's true champagne, it's like from champagne.
1: Yes, in France. (laughs) France. I knew that. (laughs) So speaking of the champagne, I'm going to pull in Badman and Russell Hosier again. So Brandon handles the champagne bottle positioned between them as they stand close together. PS, everybody stands super close together because of the way they're filming, but particularly these two. So much close proximity, so much fuck eyes.
2: I I wrote in my notes, I was like, while pouring champagne, they're so fucking close to each other. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I wrote that exact line in my notes. (laughs) Oh, God, they are so close together and you're just like maybe just kiss just just Mm -hmm. the ones you know for us
1: okay so Brandon holds its neck fiddling with its tip but he never gets the cork off he stops to get the champagne glasses then fiddles more something phallic is going on finally in a piece of thinly veiled symbolism Philip takes the bottle and pops the cork (laughs) you're doing it wrong let me just do it myself (laughs) let me give you a hand (laughs)
2: i'll get i'll finish myself
1: (laughs) uh you'll never think of champagne the same way
2: i haven't heard that before
1: (laughs) (laughs) okay so yes uh this is where we get the whole murder as a art form uh it was an immaculate murder because of course it was done so perfectly brandon is such a fucking narcissist thinking that he's gonna pull this off
2: insert jack off motion here right
1: Uh, maybe even over the champagne bottle. Yeah,
2: (laughs) probably in the champagne bottle.
1: Oh God. Uh, But yes, so they, they have performed this murder because they are not ordinary and the word comes up quite frequently, Mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, this is when he talks about how he felt. They discuss the dinner party that they're hosting and who's going to be coming. So of course they had to invite David's parents, his former girlfriend, Janet, who is played by Joan Chandler, as well as her former love, Kenneth, who is played by Douglas Dick.
2: And even going back to the not ordinary, like they might as well be saying not normal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Again, coded language. But yeah, this whole thing, it's like, oh, wow. Like, I, honestly, this, even if you like, let's say for a second that you were like, yeah, sure, like murderers, kill David, whatever. Okay. Even at this point, though, you, if you're thinking that you're like, okay, but really, y'all are going to invite the family? <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. it's so fucked up these guys are assholes oh it's very fucked up yeah and
1: the simple fact that they think that they not only will get away with it but that everyone else will be too fucking stupid like Brandon actually says everyone that we invited is so boring that's why i had to invite rupert because he's the only one who stands a chance of catching us
2: he, it's sociopathic behavior like 101 like he he is a sociopath
1: oh for sure yeah so Brandon collects the books that are going to provide the excuse for having this dinner party, and he takes them off of the trunk so that they can then use this as a dining room table instead of the typical dining room table. And this is where we first start to see Philip panicking because he sees the rope sticking out of the trunk.
2: Uh, also, like Leak reference, by the way, with this.
1: Oh my god, I think I messaged you after I watched this and was like, did we mention this when we covered *Diabolik*? <laughs> because *Diabolik* is definitely seven years after this movie.
2: Yes. So, sorry, I didn't mean to imply that Robes stole it from *Diabolik*.
1: <laughs>
2: Hitchcock could see the future.
1: Just more, I can't believe that we didn't realize, oh, it's two queer lovers who hide mm-hmm. a body in a trunk and then try to just bald face, move it through a population of people and risking getting caught at every junction.
2: And listeners, I will let you all know that Diabolique is one of our... Uh, I'm not going to say worst performing, but it's not in the high ranking. I'm sorry. It's actually the worst performing episode of, uh, of Quarter One. So I would actually recommend, if you enjoyed Rope, please go and double feature it with Diabolique, because they would make a great double feature. And I I believe we even said in that episode that Diabolique heavily inspired Hitchcock to make Psycho. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know. And also
1: girl that's scary are fantastic guests and you should listen to it for them alone Mm
2: -hmm, mm -hmm, they're great
1: (laughs) uh okay so this is when we get the introduction of miss wilson who is played by edith evanson she is the housekeeper which to me is like oh and they're also loaded gays (laughs) and okay living together right presumably yes i mean i'm sure that they would have separate bedrooms
2: i mean i obviously we know this is brandon's place for sure but Mm -hmm. yeah like i would assume philip lives here with him but it's never really stated you have to kind of infer it
1: it's not and we don't really see bedrooms per se we we hear of a bedroom and we see janet and kenneth talking but i don't Like, we don't get a fixed geography. It's not one of the rooms we really go in. Yeah. Yeah. So, Miss Wilson
2: is very unhappy that they are using the trunk. She does not understand this at all. Well, okay, because not only... so. I would assume if they were using the dining room table, they would all be sitting at said table, right?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, although Philip does make a reference later when he's trying to chastise her when she's talking to Rupert, and he says, well, people would have had to get their food and bring it in here anyway. So maybe the intention was always to eat in the living room.
2: Right. Like it was always going to be this kind of buffet of sorts with with champagne. (laughs) I guess so. They did things differently back in the 40s. No. When you talk about people that are like shot when they're standing close together, there is a shot later in the film where it's uh, it's Brandon and David's dad and then I want to say the aunt like sitting on the couch together mm-hmm. but David's dad is like smushed oh, yeah. <laughs> between the two people on his side. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there is not enough furniture to accommodate this many people. <laughs> mm-mm, mm-mm. So this is where Brandon describes the trunk as a ceremonial altar for a sacrificial dinner.
2: Oh god. Jack off motion.
1: Right. Uh, the other fun thing that you could think of, and this is what Lawrence describes it as, the, the screenwriter, Lawrence, he says, oh, well, actually, what they're doing is they're preparing a dinner over top of a coffin.
2: Interesting. And see, I actually viewed the the, the chess as more of a closet of sorts, because, mm-hmm. like, you know, the whole movie, oh, we have two gay men keeping a secret. Don't open the closet because you don't want something to come out of said closet.
1: Yeah, it, it's interesting, actually, I did find a couple of people who talk about that explicitly. So, Les Fabian Braithwaite for IndieWire says, the entire film acts as a metaphor for home. Homosexuality—a secret hiding in plain sight—that the two men hope won't yet somehow will get exposed. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I I thought that that was interesting. That part of this is like it's not even that they think they'll get away with it. It's like, hey, are you reading the signs? Yes, we've committed a murder.
2: Also, we're gay. <laughs> like so they're testing the waters, like how far can we go without having the secret get out? What's worse, we committed
1: murder or we are fucking each other? But let's... What's the most
2: public place we can fuck without getting caught?
1: Right. Oh my god, they're sexual voyeurs. <laughs> uh, okay, so through the swinging door, we see that Brandon drops the rope in a kitchen... Uh, drawer and then philip is upset to learn that rupert Cadell, who is played by jimmy stewart their headmaster from prep school is also going to be coming to the dinner so brandon is the worst kind of boyfriend where he's literally springing things on his paramour at every opportunity
2: no he's a dick he's a terrible boyfriend
1: (laughs) terrible boyfriend not only should you not force your boyfriend to commit murder but you should definitely not bring in an authority figure that they don't know
2: is coming well, and one thing that I wish, like, because honestly, we, we really see Philip, up, like, nervous and anxious the entire movie. We yeah. I wish somehow there was a way to see him in the planning stages where he was, like, gung-ho, like, yep, we're going to do this. Because mm-hmm. it, as, as it stands, it just reads as, oh, yeah, like, like Brandon basically forced him to do this, which, which maybe is what it is. But I wish we could have seen Philip pre-murder to see, like, if he did, like, a, a one, like, a turnaround, like a switch.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you definitely don't get a sense of who he is before all of this, where you very distinctly get the impression that this is who Brendan always is. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Always a dick. Constant. (laughs) All right. So the guests begin arriving, and Kenneth is first. This guy is just a blank walking around this movie. He is so forgettable.
2: Uh, <laughs> I thought he was cute. Um but yeah Oh sure.
1: He's cute, but also I'm like, oh he looks exactly like David. Are we
2: sure that we didn't just have the actor appear in multiple roles of this movie? Well and that's the thing though, right? Because like the whole thing, A, um I love this actress that plays Janet, um Joan Chandler. I actually think that her role is quite like I, I like watching her on screen and oh, I like that she's, she's a, fucking great. Yeah. But she stands up for herself too. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. like she like calls Brandon on his shit. And I'm like, yeah, but the whole gag is that, yeah, she, she left Kenneth for David because Kenneth just was boring. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: And interestingly enough, I feel like if they redid this movie and modernized it, there's a throwaway line where when she discovers that Kenneth is there, because she clearly didn't really know who was coming to this party. She drags Brendan aside and she's like, what the fuck are you doing? Why is my ex here? And he says, oh, I didn't realize you two had broken up. Oh,
2: I didn't realize you were a thing. Like, it's total bullshit. No, he's playing these mind games with everyone, which again, um, you know, (laughs) fun, fun gay men. Sure, sure. (laughs) But yeah, uh, also, I mean, backing up a little bit to when we have the rope sticking out of the damn trunk, like he carries it to the kitchen, swinging it around as if it's his dick flailing around, (laughs) like, just to be like, because I can.
1: Yeah. That's who Brandon is. Well, so the point I was trying to make about his relationship to Janet is when he says, oh, I didn't realize that you two are used to date. He basically slut shames her in 1948 language yes, when he, he says, oh, well, first you dated me and mm. then you went to Kenneth and then you went to David. And I thought, hey, that's really interesting that we're, we're getting this kind of misogyny this mm. early on. But also the fact that you know, I, I suppose we could then read Brandon as bisexual, bisexual.
0: Yeah.
1: or that he has been interested in doing these kinds of power plays for so long that he's like. Either setting things up in advance, or he's using this as an opportunity to seek retribution against Janet.
2: Well, that's where we have the sociopathy coming in, right? Like, do we actually think that Brandon feels for anyone? No. no. He just wants to show superiority. He he doesn't have actual, like, emotions towards his people outside of, like, I'm better than you. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: and and I guess that's another piece where it might have been interesting to see the planning of the murder because we don't get a good read on the relationship between Brandon and Philip. Did he actually, like? does Brandon actually like or love Philip? Because he doesn't show a lot of sympathy or...
2: Uh, well, support for him. it's honestly, it's it's reminiscent of just a toxic, uh, toxic relationship, not in general, but also a toxic gay relationship of, let's say, you're more seasoned gay who's been out for a while taking in a new baby gay under his wing and manipulating <laughs> him to do what he wants because he knows he can because uh, someone that's fresh out of the closet, like they're gonna have a lot of like, Like there's a lot of things going on there. And so that's kind of what this reminded me of is like an old, not old, but like a a creep, like taking advantage of a freshly out gay man.
1: Mm. Yeah. It's kind of similar to the conversation that we had about midnight kiss when we talked about it on Patreon.
2: Yep. 100% just like that. (sighs) Okay. But, but that even stems, you know, from like, uh, I mean, this is like a rabbit hole kind of thing, but it's like, uh, uh, no, but it's like, you know, I'm trying to say the nice way. A lot of, queer people, not even just gay men, but like, I'll, I'll use gay men, because that's my lived experience, that are closeted for, let's say, you know, the first 30 years of their lives, and they come out in their 30s, they're then they're kind of, you know, spinning their 30s being themselves for the first time living their teenage years, you might say, mm. in their 30s. But there's still psychological damage that's been done. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. For having to hide yourself for however long. I mean, even me, I came out at 16. But like, you know, I was still hiding myself for a good chunk of time. And that does things to your mind, uh, not necessarily doesn't mean it's going to be like, make you a sociopath.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Probably not. No,
2: but I I do think that there's kind of like a thing um, in in at least gay male relationships where you have people that will take advantage of people that are freshly out because they can.
1: Yeah. I mean, this definitely feels like a power imbalance, particularly as Mm -hmm. the film goes on.
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, Philip just like, I mean, I think he stands up for himself once, <laughs> and it's during the chicken conversation. Yeah, and and even then, it's
1: like an emotional outburst, which is akin to the conversation we had with Terry a couple of weeks ago when we talked about how, yeah. you know, people become hysterical, and then they become feminized, or, yeah.
2: or they're treated
1: as effeminate, and delicate, and sensitive, and so on.
2: Yeah, stop being a little bitch, don't be a little girl.
1: Well, it's important to note that Brendan does slap Philip at one point when he becomes too hysterical. He sure does. Yeah okay so we're still in the early stages of this party we haven't welcomed all of the guests but this is when we introduce uh that Rupert is going to be joining because nobody else knows Rupert except for the boys who went to prep school mm-hmm. so Brandon and Philip tell the others what to expect which is that Rupert is steeped in philosophy so he has written books about it and I love Janet's description small print big words no sales <laughs> Which is, uh, I mean, not to shit on academia, but I feel like I can't because I work in it. But I'm just like, oh, yes, uh, we've all read those papers or those books.
2: <laughs> I, yeah, I, honestly, what I, cause, because this is my first time watching this film, I actually thought that this body was going to get revealed when everyone was still there. Uh, okay. And I kind of wish that would have happened. I mean, I get the whole idea, you know, we have to have it between these three men because that's that's what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. But I wish that we would have seen other people's reactions to this body.
1: Right. Whereas... It's tricky because it doesn't quite play this way, and again, Lawrence would say that Hitchcock undermined the whole principle of building tension, but you're supposed to be worried that the body could be discovered at any point. So you know it will be discovered, because that's the premise of the film, but you're supposed to wonder if Janet would find it, or if the housekeeper will find it, and so on. Mm. The problem is, is that we we never worry. Yeah. Yeah, well maybe absolutely. there's one scene we'll talk about it
2: yeah i mean yeah there's not a ton of close calls in this movie i mean yeah i think the one you're talking about is when mrs wilson is about to like possibly open the, the, the yes chest.
1: yeah correct okay so we have two new guests arriving and they are david's father mr kentley played by cedric hardwick as well as amateur astrologer Aunt atwater played by constance collier she is a fucking hoot.
2: Yeah, I, I love this character.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and basically because she's a ditz. She shows up, she has no idea what's going on. She, I mean, honestly, if we're thinking about a queer text and then a woman who just wants to read everybody's palms and talk about their horoscope, I was like, oh, wow, okay, we're, we're really going gay on this.
2: These hands will make you famous. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I do like that she is so confused that she calls Kenneth by david's name and that causes philip to shatter his glass so that's kind of the first sign it's a it's a literal crack that philip will not be able to handle this pressure
0: Mm -hmm.
1: okay so we get a little bit of exposition about who david is and everybody's wondering where he'll be this was apparently an attempt to give the dead man a sense of character so that we would understand why people would be so upset and very worried about the fact that he hasn't arrived I'm like, okay, sure.
2: Yeah, I mean, and th- this is really, yeah, this is the, okay, let's get to know these characters a bit too. Mm-hmm. I, I also love, I mean, I'm going to say it's meta, but these references to James Mason and Cary Grant, I was like, <laughs> that's fun.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, a lot of people have interpreted the the something about something that uh, the aunt cannot remember the movie that she went to see. A lot of people have interpreted that as a reference to Notorious. Uh, well,
2: yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. 1940s, Kevin Williamson.
1: <laughs> Hitchcock is the original Kevin Williams. <laughs> not really. I'm not actually saying that.
0: Oh, people would kill us.
1: Oh, indeed. Uh there is a line by Brandon where he notices that Kenneth needs more champagne and he says, There's too much air in your glass, which is the term I'm going to use whenever I need to refill someone's drink moving forward.
2: Oh, uh, okay. There you go. Too much air in your glass. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm. Need a top-up.
2: Uh, yeah
1: so this is where Aunt Atwater is talking to Philip and she compliments him on his hands which of course is that double message like you're going to be famous for your hands which fucking murdered my nephew Or because you're a famous pianist. (laughs) Uh, It should be noted that Philip plays a piece on the piano for the entire film. It's the same piece over and over again. It is uh, Francis Poulenc's perpetual movement. And uh, just as a fun little aside, Francis Poulenc was a gay man. Gays everywhere. Indeed. All right, so enter the man of the hour, Rupert
2: Caudel. Just shows up, by the way. No knocks. Like he showed up, and I was like, "Wait, was there an entrance for him?" He just walks <laughs> in. <laughs> oh yeah, he's just sneaking around like the master
1: sleuth, entitled gay. <sighs> okay, so let let's address that right now because okay. when I found out that this character in the play is mm. actually queer, all I could do was feel a sense of grief about the film that we don't get as a result because if this character was gay in Mm rope, i think it would have just added all of these additional complexities darling like this would have been so much richer thematically i think it would have complicated a lot of the queer readings that we have for it but i just think jimmy stewart is such a fucking stick in the mud in this movie
2: Well, so what do you mean by it would have spoiled some of the queer readings we had for this film if this character was queer?
1: Well, because it would have been kind of like what you mentioned earlier. It's an older man grooming his, his students because the insinuation is that he has slept with Brandon.
2: Right, so I can totally see that, but then I can also see it as like I don't, I don't really know if I would say it complicates it because to me it's like cool, it's a cycle because I, mm. I mean, granted, I do think that Brandon and Philip are probably more closer in age than like yes. Brandon and Rupert, but Brandon seems older, so it's like okay, like it's this cycle of I'm gonna say abuse almost, yeah, uh, uh, of Rupert grooming Brandon and then Brandon grooming Philip, right? But we see we don't even get that then we just no. get
1: oh, well, here's this one sociopathic gay who corrupts his boyfriend, and blah.
2: Yeah, I mean, again, inviting Rupert in general was a really stupid idea. Like, that, that's, oh God, some, yeah. that's some grand hubris right there. Oh, God, yeah.
1: That's asking to be caught, which is, where are you going?
2: <laughs> that's what happens! <laughs>
1: I do love it that in the real case, in the play, and then also in the movie, they think they're that they're not even going to get caught, and then they get caught within
2: hours of committing well, the movie no murder. that's I mean, honestly that's that's another thing for me too like it, when they get caught like it, it happens so fast mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like, and I think I think that's where me worse some people when they complain about the tension of the suspense is like okay like yeah there, there's not really a ton of suspense honestly in the first hour of this movie for me because it's like well it's not gonna happen yet <laughs> okay interesting
1: yeah that's not how you're meant to feel. I don't think, I,
2: and and maybe on a rewatch I'll feel differently.
1: Mm, no, I don't think so because it's <laughs> it's very clear that they're not going to get caught until later.
2: Yeah, yeah, but again, I, I still like watching the characters, so that's fun.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, and and I think that's a testament to not just the actors who are doing it, but also as I've mentioned the the screenwriting. Yeah, for sure okay so everyone has now arrived um there is a quick hint that brandon has been planning this for quite some time because his favorite story was the mistletoe bow which is uh basically how to commit a murder and get away with it that he's been talking about since he was a child so (laughs) sociopath okay we get a scene where janet serves chicken and when philip says that he doesn't eat uh she says that that's queer and then mentions freud says there's a reason for everything it should be noted that uh freudian psychology was very popular in the mid to late 40s
2: well and i will pull a piece from decider uh this is when hitchcock went gay strangers on a train and rope by tyler Coates. and it should also be noted that farley granger who plays philip was also in strangers on a train
1: yes he's the villain
2: Yeah, (laughs) but Coates writes, the motif of queer sexuality in Rope is, at times, hilariously obvious, especially when Rupert brings up Brandon's youthful penchant for murdering chickens on an acquaintance's farm. Mm -hmm. Especially when Rupert brings up Philip's youthful penchant for murdering chickens on an acquaintance's farm. Philip tries to deny he ever did such a thing, but Brandon announces that he knows he has not just once... But multiple times, you're quite a good chicken strangler, as I recall, is an actual line of dialogue. Mm-hmm. Nothing uh
1: nothing Freudian or euphemizy in there.
2: Choking the chicken? Uh
1: yeah, that's actually where we're at, the the chicken story. Um so I feel like that's a bit of an attempt to suggest, oh, well, Philip has also always had this murderous yep. impulse, but he is more actively open to denying it. Because, of course, this is when he has his fit that that didn't happen. He denies it. The whole story is false.
2: Yeah, but you could also, uh, I mean, if we really, I mean, this is, a, this is a reach, obviously, for me. But, um, like, say, oh, like, maybe they're accusing him of being gay. And he's like, no, it wasn't. I didn't. I'm not gay. Right. Yeah.
1: You can conflate murder with gay, sadly, quite a bit throughout this film. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. So this is where we get the, the overview, the philosophical underpinnings of, uh, the Nietzschean Superman, the Uberwench. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of funny dialogue here from Jimmy Stewart about like, Oh, have you found it difficult to get, uh, theater tickets? Wouldn't it be great if we could just stab people or slit their throats? And, uh, you know, the ant is having a good old giggle about it. But Mr. Kentley gets very upset about this and he drops A reference to nazism here oh and i wanted to flag it because uh again this is coming three years after the end of the second world war and i i don't know if it was lawrence who put it in here or if it was hitchcock but uh i just wanted to flag for people that hitchcock had actually produced a documentary about the genocide committed by the nazis who used nietzsche's superman as one of the reasons why they committed genocide in the Second World War. Mm. So I I think it's a very deliberate decision by Hitchcock after seeing just the absolute atrocities that were happening in the concentration camps that he wanted to make it clear, like, no, this is not a valid reason. Like, anybody who is using this is misconstruing the philosophy, but also, fuck Nazis, basically. Mm. hmm. Yeah, I didn't catch that. (laughs) (laughs) It is literally a line in this film. (laughs) God. Okay, so uh, Kenneth and Janet realize that Brandon is lying to them, so when she confronts him for a second time, he drops this line on her. Oh, I know exactly what you're about to say, and I totally wrote it down. (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) Some women are quite charming when they're angry,
2: Janet. Unfortunately, you are not. Oh my god! I like Mike drop out the room. Right? She like her face. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, i I make her the star of this movie. She's great. Ah, oh, she's so fantastic. I love it too. Is, is
1: you know when you look at a film from 1948, I mean, again, if you're watching certain types of films, you are going to see assertive modern women. But her character feels really fresh. Like. I feel like you wouldn't even need to do much to change Janet to make her modern if you remade this film now. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> okay, that's not the response I was thinking. <laughs> okay. I, don't, I, don't, know, I yeah. don't know. I don't know. I don't know. All right. So, uh, Ms. Wilson, who has a thing for Rupert, apparently, uh, they get like co-conspiratorial as
2: they're talking a little bit about the party prep here. And this is kind of when the suspense does ratchet up for me a little bit because yes we 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 are building to something people are acting weird people are i mean it really kind of starts with that murder talk because david's dad gets all freaked out Mm -hmm. but yeah like from here on out like we are kind of like okay like we're moving we're moving
1: well and you can actively see rupert collecting the pieces of evidence and taking note of you know when philip has an outburst you the camera will actually focus on Rupert's face as he, like, pays attention, so you can see him putting the pieces together mentally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, she fills in this all of the facts about, like, oh, yeah, they weren't going to use this trunk. Oh, huh? they sent me out for a really long time. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> you know, very suspicious behavior. So uh, this is where the the truth about the chicken strangling comes out when he quizzes Philip about it, and Philip is like, "Da da da,
2: just playing piano." <laughs> this is a good little like back and forth though between them because obvi- yeah. it is clear Philip is not holding his own.
1: <laughs> He's so curt too. You're like, uh, "Dude, you're supposed to be the meek one," and yet you're. Boldly asking, "Get the light out of my face." I don't like playing piano with light in my face.
2: But like, okay, so we have this entire exchange, which again, yeah, it's it's basically Rupert is like police interrogating him, (laughs) and he's acting like a real dick about it too. Oh yeah, yeah. But then we have David's father walking out of the dining room with the books that he wants, tied Mm -hmm. with the rope, with the titular rope. (laughs)
1: It almost feels like Brandon wants to break Philip
2: by just yes. doing all of these little things like, uh, oh, this is going to send him into a tailspin. No, I mean, that's, that's a toxic relationship, right? He's like, oh, I know this is going to bother Philip, so let me do it. So mm-hmm. it's not even just let me come as close as I can to getting caught without getting caught. It's also let me drive my partner nuts. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm
1: so this is where we get one of the few moments in the entire film where Hitchcock isn't moving the camera and it's the kind of static shot as we watch Mrs. Wilson dropping off the books in between rooms and I love the framing I do think that this is where the tension you're right really starts to ratchet up and it's the moment where we come closest to Discovery because she starts to open the chest but of course uh, Brandon is there and he's like why don't you go home (laughs) Uh, this is also where David's distraught mother calls. I do love that we never meet her. We never uh, really get to know anything about her. She's at home sick.
2: <laughs> yeah, and so so the dad's like, well, I gotta bring somebody, so I might as well bring the aunt.
1: Yeah, indeed. Because <laughs> heaven forbid you arrive to a party by yourself.
2: <laughs> it's the parties.
1: Uh, So the party is basically breaking up because they're realizing something is very wrong. No one has heard from David. The mother is now getting hysterical. So everybody starts to kind of pack up. This is where Brandon smugly observes that Kenneth is leaving with Janet. (laughs) Fucking Brandon.
2: (laughs) And this is where Rupert is given David's hat by accident. Yes. Yes. Which uh, at that point, I mean, he could have just said right then and there, but he does
1: it. Why? I think because he's not 100% certain, but I think he also wants to do this when no one else is around. Again, why? (laughs) Because he also kind of thinks of himself as a bit of a superman.
2: Yeah, yeah. And he's also gay and he wants to keep it in the family.
1: <laughs> okay. Jimmy Stewart is so fucking asexual, I can't even get a sexual reading off I mean, of him. Okay. I mean okay,
2: I I I said earlier, like I know his voice is and the inflection of his voice is very, very specific. Oh Mary. I, I, I have heard a lot of I wanna see even in like Looney Tunes, like I feel like I've heard Looney Tunes like do his voice because they, they would do that all the time. So mm-hmm. I think this is the first time I've actually, ever actually heard the actual Jimmy Stewart's voice, right? But you've heard it a million times in other ways. Yes, one hundred percent. But I was just very like, uh, I don't like that.
1: <laughs> oh, it's a very distinct voice <laughs> to the point where you're like, wow. So you survived into talkies, huh? Okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, says I with like my voice.
2: I mean, it's, uh, not to say Jimmy Stewart. I mean, you know, obviously respected actor. Blah 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 blah. blah. Um, but. <laughs> <laughs> it just doesn't really work for me.
1: Blah, 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 blah. Academy Award winning actor. Super famous. Ugh. But that voice. Isn't he
2: the villain in North by Northwest, too? I mean, he's the hero of
1: North by Northwest, yes. I thought
2: Cary Grant was the hero of North by Northwest. Oh, shit. He's the hero of Window*. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. Oh, my God. People are going to be so mad at me. <laughs> Honestly, Hitchcock blondes, but also
1: Hitchcock generic hot men. Just like yeah. he, it's like, oh, do you have a good chest? Do you have a bland face? Do you have a full head of hair? Okay. Cool. You're cast.
2: But Cary Grant has charisma that blows
1: Jimmy Stewart out of the water.
0: Alright.
1: And also potentially bisexual. Oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> so I'm going to reference Armin White's piece at this point. So when Miss Wilson leaves, she's one of the last people to leave. She, I mean, she's a bit of a comic, tragic figure because she's so dutiful, right? Like she actually right. likes these two boys. And when she leaves, she tells Brandon, you know, to be good. And then she says, mind your P's and Q's. And I it's such an antiquated thing. Like no one would yeah. ever say it anymore. So it did stand out to me. But Armin White says, oh, If you think about P's and Q's, it does actually stand for a multiplicity of different types of things. But in this film, he reads it as cueing you towards the number of mentions that we've heard of the word peculiar as well as queer. Queer. So it's just another opportunity to be like, hey, have you been minding the P's and the Q's in this film?
2: (laughs) Keep yourself closeted, boys.
1: (laughs) Yeah, don't get up to anything I wouldn't do.
2: No butthole play. Oh my god. Can you imagine? (laughs)
1: That's the porn parody of Rope.
2: Oh, what would you call it? Rope. uh... Oh, also, I should point out, every time I was Googling Rope in Google, Mm -hmm. the autofill was Rope Play for me. Oh, what have you been up to? I, not, I mean, again, no king shaming, it's fine. I just never thought to look up Rope Play, but (laughs) maybe I've just been watching enough porn that they're like, oh yeah, he'll want that.
1: Maybe, yeah. I don't know. I mean, sales did skyrocket after Fifty Shades of Grey.
2: Yep, that's true. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Not even joking really but
2: No 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 I, I, I believe you <laughs> All nah, those, li- those 50 year old women
1: well, all those people thinking that they could just go to you know places that sell regular conventional rope, and it's like, yeah, I'll use this to let my lover tie me up. It's like, no, no it's supposed
2: to be a specific kind. <laughs> yeah, not the not the one that's going to scratch up your wrists. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh my god, I'm also thinking about all like the, the the number of like really sexy contractual obligation agreement scenes that that were played out in real time with all these people. Oh
1: yes, <laughs> can you deliver that rope to me? <laughs> it's
2: the best scene of Fifty Shades of Grey. Is that damn contract scene? It's the oh best scene. God, it's so stupid. <laughs> All right.
1: Okay. Okay. So the party is officially over. We are left with just Brandon and Philip. So Philip gets absolutely fucking smashed at this point, yep. and he is real mad. So um, this is where Rupert then calls and says, hey, I forgot my cigarette case. Can I come back up? And uh, it requires a slap.
2: Yeah, this is, yeah, like snap out of it. But like not. Mm-hmm, but not funny. But but, but but this is also when we kind of have Brandon. He's like, no, because he says, I am not going to get caught because of you or anyone else. No mm-hmm. one is going to get in my way now. There is no hour anymore. It no. is my. And I would almost argue that it was always Brandon's way and that. I
1: think he yes. was prepared to dump Philip the same way that he was going to dump David's body in that Connecticut
2: lake. I'm actually surprised he doesn't just flat out throw Philip under the bus like during this climax.
1: Uh-huh. I think the problem is, is that Rupert wouldn't believe it because it's so obviously Brandon's plan.
2: Yeah, because we had that line earlier, though, where he's like, oh, you stutter when you're excited. Yes, I think excited. Mm-hmm. it is excited. Just like a first date. Yeah,
1: or when you're sexually stimulated. Yeah. Honestly, it's like, yes, we we could be accused of reaching as always, but nah. the wordplay in here is so queer coded. Again,
2: first time watch, I picked it up.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a reason that like, it was banned because it wasn't that hard for people to pick up.
2: Like, yeah, you don't have to have them making out on the screen. Like, it was just like, no, people in the 40s were like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> I have a dar that's going off, and I'm not sure what it is. I can't say it.
1: Is it an it dar? Yeah, the it dar. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) The love that shall not speak its name. It. It. So when Rupert does come back up, he does have a very, it's another kind of coded, meaningful line where he says, I wish I could come straight out with what I want to know. Unfortunately, I don't know anything I merely suspect. And I'm like, are you talking about
2: the murder or are you talking about the gay? Come straight, come straight. Um, no, so the line I pulled was, I suppose a psychoanalyst would say I didn't leave it at all, referring to a cigarette case. Right. But rather, I subconsciously left it here because I wanted to come back. Oh. And I, I was like, romance mm-hmm. in the air. Uh, let's see, again,
1: imagine someone who isn't a sexual vacuum playing this part. <laughs> We don't even have big Jimmy Stewart fans listening to us. Oh my god. Tell you what, if you can find a sexy Jimmy Stewart movie, please recommend it to me because I have yet to see it. He is like America's Sweetheart from the
2: 40s. I've only seen this one, so... <laughs> yeah, you're useless
1: to me. I'm talking to other people.
2: Yeah, that's fair.
1: That's fair. <laughs> All right, so we're into the home stretch. This is basically where Rupert says, I know what's up, and he outlines how he would have killed David. And I love this part. So it's mm-hmm. Hitch moving the camera as Rupert describes where David and the players would have moved around the apartment. So we can visualize how the murder took place. And again, I do think this might've been more effective had we not actually seen the murder at the beginning, but Mm -hmm. it still works like gangbusters regardless. Okay. Uh, this is where Philip gets his, his, uh, is good comeback in. So he does belligerently break the glass and he cracks. Oh, actually, no, my favorite line of his is where uh, Rupert asks for the drink and then Philip goes, he said you could have it. <laughs> I mean, Philip Granger is also super fucking hot. In I movies. think he's
2: so cute. Like, I I, <laughs> I don't really find uh, a doll. Like, uh, is it Philip? No, John Dahl that cute. But yes, uh, Philip Granger. Uh, sorry, Farley Granger. Damn it. Uh, all about it. Philip Granger. We're just combining the character I and his so many <laughs> actor's name, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, th- this is really it, right? Like, we just like, oh, like, it's kind of like a, a face-off of words here. And... Mm-hmm.
1: There's a brief struggle with a gun, but uh, Philip doesn't last long,
2: so. No, he can't. Poor guy. That poor guy. No.
1: So this is where Rupert opens the trunk, he gets confirmation that there is in fact a body in there, we of course don't see it, because we already knew that, Mm -hmm. and uh, this is where he says that he's disgusted, and that they have perverted all of his teachings, and he's so distraught with himself, but then he opens up the window, he fires the gun several times, uh, and And basically... that's the end of the movie because I mean we, we just hear sirens. And I
2: I wonder if the play would have ended before he shoots the gun out the window. If he's just like, I like I, yeah, you've corrected me you've taken my teachings, like twisted them around. Mm-hmm. But you're right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So just
1: to bring in Grevin one final time, he reads this ending as Rupert almost allegorically represents the forces of normalization, repression, and containment that abolish the perverse energies of both the murderous couple and this languidly, diabolically pleasure-focused
2: film. Okay, it's not really, like, flowing with our conversation here, but because people like to say that we reach sometimes, I want to re- do one more of Miller's things, because it's about specifically the cuts in the film and how they happen. Because uh, okay. A lot of times when we do cuts, you know, it's, it's either A, we have a couple unmasked cuts, which means like you, we just cut from one one shot to the next. like mm-hmm. That happens a couple times in this movie. But most of the time, we're like going into someone's back yes. and filling the screen with black and like we come out and boom. So what D.A. Miller says, and again, this is in his 1990 essay Anal Rope, um, he pinpoints how the transitions erotically reveal the homosexual relationship between Philip and David, but more importantly, the hidden identity of the gay male. Ironically, and probably noticeable only upon the second viewing of the film, one might observe that many of the transitions in the film are made by the camera panning into the backside of a man's suit. This is Hitchcock's Freudian slip, bringing Freud back. Though it is never said, it is felt. The viewer enters a noir area. This is the invitation to wonder, according to the film, what is gay sex? Under the cover of these blackouts, two things get quote-unquote hidden. One is the popularity, privilege, site of gay male sex, the orifice whose sexual use general opinion considers, whatever happens to be the state of sexual practices among gay men, and however it may vary according to the time and place, the least dispensable element in defining the true homosexual. The other is the cut, whose pure technicity acclaim can hardly be sustained at so overwhelmingly hallucinatory a moment, even if the script didn't link the word with the body wound of irreducible symbolic importance. That's a lot of words. Mm-hmm. um but we've just got yeah going into a man's backside is is, is like the, is hitchcock's way of like putting gay sex on film right yeah.
1: yeah it's an interesting idea i mean this is very much like where film theory and film criticism yes. kind of like <laughs> sometimes academics just love to use them 20 dollars words when you know you basically summarize okay well this is hitchcock introducing queer sex into this but also right. hiding his cut
2: and and this is, I mean, and that's why I say, you know, people accuse us of making reads, which we, I mean, we 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 make reaches all the time, but it's also in good fun a lot of the time. Whereas this is an academic text.
1: <laughs> yeah, I I don't completely disagree with that. I mean, mm-hmm. you could have distilled it down to make it a little bit more approachable, but at the end of the day, one of the things that becomes really obvious in this film, as we talked about off the top, is just how obvious all of the technical elements of the film are so we're very aware when the where and when the camera is moving but we're also very aware particularly at specific points where we are hiding a cut and it is there's a couple of really obvious ones where you're not meant to see it but yeah we zoom in on a man's backside and the screen goes dark and yeah. if anything it it's hitchcock trying to hide it But it only makes it more obvious to us. It
2: it does make me wonder, though, is, like, the handful of unmasked cuts. Like, again, there's one where I think we're seeing Rupert, Brandon, and Philip, and then we just cut to Mrs. Wilson. Mm -hmm. Why? Like, if we're working so hard to mask all these cuts, why are there, like, two or three cuts that aren't masked? Was it for practicality? Was it a deliberate creative choice? Like, I don't. I wish I knew the answer to that question. Maybe, maybe it's out there. I don't know. Uh, there may be one insight. I can't remember where they all
1: happened, but Hitch did have to go back and reshoot certain portions of this because the Technicolor wasn't done properly. Mm. He was apparently very pissed off, but as <laughs> a result, they did have to reshoot certain reels. So I wonder if maybe he just couldn't get the coverage he
2: needed. So maybe. he had to do a traditional edit. Yeah. Oh, man, oh, that would be so frustrating. Right? <laughs> if, if if the idea walking into this was, no, it's going to look like one continuous take, and then, like, yeah, it fucks up, and you have to go reshoot things, and then it mm-hmm. doesn't work, ooh, i oh, would yeah. be
1: mad. Oh, and he is a fucking perfectionist, so he would have been irate. Oh, I'm
2: sure. <laughs> He's like, Jimmy Stewart, come over here. No! <laughs> I'm not fucking <laughs> doing that shit again. Oh, <sighs> boy. But, uh, but yeah, that's rope. hmm That's rope. Mm-hmm. That's rope rope it out i mean what do you think of Rob joe
1: <laughs> i like it i mean i said i went through a hitchcock period i mm-hmm. didn't actually see all of them but i saw there's a lot though there's he was actually very prolific yeah yeah i probably ended up seeing about half of them i'd put this kind of in the middle like it's good to watch every once in a while but it's not a big favorite I think if you were a person who appreciated the technical aspects of filmmaking, this would be a really fun kind of watch, just because it happened so early, well, early in quotation marks. It's like film had been around for quite a while at this point, but compared to our lived experience, it's like, oh my god, this is 80 years ago, and they were trying these really audacious techniques. Like It's impressive. So I think if for no other reason, the film is great for that, but then also, this is such a blatantly queer film Mm -hmm. from one of the most high profile hollywood directors and that's kind of impressive even if queers don't come off looking well i do kind of applaud the fact that we had very explicit queer representation here
2: well and also i mean while it is hitchcock directing the film it's still a gay man that wrote this film Mm -hmm. i mean well based on a play but (laughs) right But still, you know, I mean, like, and you have queer actors. I mean, there are queer people involved with this production. Yes. Granted, what they could do, because again, it's 1948. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it's not like if it was made today, you know, people would be like, um, excuse me, that may be a little, like, (laughs) maybe we tweak this aspect of it. Right. But the central premise of the film, like, if you want to read this film as being harmful to gays, uh, or, or like not putting them in the best light, it's valid, but it's also like, that's the basic premise. So I don't know how you could like change anything here without... Mm -hmm. Like literally changing the story. Well, or you you don't make them gay at
1: all, and then you're mm-hmm. just telling a very conventional story about two boys who commit
2: a murder. But that's so much less interesting, is right? it? right? Mm-hmm. Well, but I'm thinking, even thinking with like Murder by Numbers, which, granted, I haven't seen Murder by Numbers in a very long time. Yeah, but like th- there is very much like queer undertones with that, oh, and yes. that's why we get that's why we get queer undertones with Billy and Stu as well. Like, mm-hmm. apparently, no matter what. <laughs> If you have two youthful yeah. men plotting a murder, doing it, and, like, trying to cover it up their secret, mm-hmm. it just, yeah. no it matter what, it gay. just reeks gay. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I liked this quite a bit. I didn't love it, but I, I, I do want to rewatch it just because I want to see if if I'm able to, like, not let the camera distract me and mm-hmm. pay more attention to the dialogue. You know I mean? Like, this is your, like, not your first time watching this, so... Uh, also maybe I should watch it with subtitles. I'll pull a U and watch it with <laughs> subtitles.
1: <laughs> I'm just shouting it from the rooftop, folks. Watch everything with subtitles. You pick up a lot, especially
2: in dialogue-heavy movies. Oh yeah. Well, because also if you have subtitles on, you're also your eyes are focused on the words, mm-hmm. not the mo-, mo the movement of the camera, the m- the move of the camera. Ah, <laughs> uh, the move of the camera. <laughs> but yeah, no. I mean, I, I, I thought this is this is a good watch, and I'm glad to finally cross this off my bucket list. There you go. Yeah, we're slowly making our way through the old classics, right? Mm-hmm. Um. but yeah so that is Rope and before we announce what we're covering next week I guess we have our regular old housekeeping to get through if you want to get in touch with us you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at Horror Queers join our Facebook Horror Queers group to hang out with other listeners and find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered uh, we've also got a YouTube channel for our Micro Queers episodes which come out every other Friday uh, so be sure to go check those out and if you have a moment please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice if you would like even more Horror Queer's content. Please support us and the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com/horrorqueers. Uh so you know go subscribe to that and you can listen to our August episodes on The Boy Behind the Door, Old The Night House and both Don't Breathe's <laughs> ah, the breezes. <laughs> Plus, uh, if you subscribe at the highest level, you can get up to 130 hours of other bonus content. Oh man, folks, there's a lot of good episodes on there.
1: We try to do like a gentle plug throughout each episode, but it's mostly just because we don't think everybody knows how many episodes we have dropped on that Patreon. There's a lot of good stuff
2: there. I mean, yeah, it, yeah, we, we, we. It's almost like, like yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, just yes, yeah. <laughs> But Joe, 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 Joe. Joe mm-hmm. We we have a thing next week. I mean not a thing, it's a it's a regular episode. But <laughs> No, it's
1: a thing, Trace. Oh my god, the clouds are parting. Yeah. We are coming home to Canada. It is time for another Dave Cronenberg. And folks, you're gonna be shocked.
2: It is a David Cronenberg I have not seen. Oh my God, we're covering the fly. Yay! We are fine. Okay, so if you have been with us since the beginning, or if you have listened to our early episodes, you'll know that one of our first episodes was on David Cronenberg's Dead Ringers. Mm -hmm. We also covered The Brood later that year. Yes. But yeah, Joe and all of his I love David Cronenberg shit um, has never seen The Fly. And I'm yep. so excited for him to finally see this movie.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, me too. Yes. The body horror, the icky gooey, and also the Jeff Goldblum
2: of it all. Yes. And yeah, so obviously, yeah, this is the remake of The Fly. And if you have never seen this movie, um, not really content warnings, but it is a very gross mm-hmm. movie. It is gross not even gory so much it is just disgusting yeah. it's very gooey so <laughs> so prep your shower you've been warned <laughs> <laughs> but on that note until next week we can cross out rope-a-dope <laughs> indeed yes uh and cross out horror queers with the moo <laughs>